Hey friends, quick note on this episode. There are a few brief spots where there's a gap in the audio we've had to fix because the internet failed to capture the audio properly. It doesn't affect the overall content, which is still terrific, but we wanted to let you know. We've since switched recording software to hopefully mitigate this problem in the future. Now, the podcast. On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Brendan Case about his new book, The Accountable Animal. So we cover topics like just what does it mean for the human to be an accountable animal? What does accountability really require and how is it related to justice? How is nature and agency of corporate persons part of this whole discussion? And much, much more. As always, if you have questions or thoughts about the show in general, you can hit us up Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or check us out at our website, thelondonlyceum.com. Now, for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I'm one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your co-host, Brandon Askew. And we're a podcast that hopes to to develop and to grow and to promote thinking. And we want to do that in a way that is cultivating particular virtues such as charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And today, I'm really looking forward to introducing you all to Dr. Brendan Case, who I don't know a specific title at Harvard, but it's something cool. And he'll explain that when I ask him to. But we're going to talk in this interview about his new book called The Accountable Animal. I think it's fascinating. Uh, I mean, typically when I think of accountability, I think of, you know, growing up in megachurch world we, and evangelicalism, accountability partners, or, you know, when you talk about sports, coaches, players being accountable, like that's what I think of. And I don't necessarily think of that being as part of human nature. So I'm really looking forward to discussing this, particularly, I mean, when reading through the book, I mean, you cover guys, everything from Roger Scruton to Nicholas Wolterstorff to Hegel to, I mean, you've got a huge range of, of topics in here. So this is really cool. Um, and we're going to talk all about it. So Dr. Case, why don't you, for those who aren't familiar with you, give us a little bit of background on you, your education, what you're doing now, the thing at Harvard, which is, uh, from what I've seen, is really, really neat. And then what got you interested in this topic in particular? Sure. Yeah, thanks, Jordan. Uh, it's a pleasure to be, be with you and Brandon uh, today. It's really an honor to be invited on to the London uh, Lyceum and, and uh, I'm excited about our conversation as well. Uh, so yeah, as you said, I'm, I'm Brendan Case. I am the uh, Associate Director for Research of uh, a little outfit called the Human Flourishing Program at Harvard University. And uh, we're a fairly young group. We were founded in 2016 by uh, our director, Tyler Vanderwill, who's an epidemiologist at Harvard. And uh, the aim of the program, I'm just going to read off the website uh, at the moment, just, just so I, I, I make sure I get it right, uh, is, is to study and promote human flourishing and to develop systematic approaches to the synthesis of knowledge across disciplines. So particularly... Uh, uh, bringing together the social sciences, um, public health, sociology, psychology, uh, and the humanities, um, and in particular philosophy and, and theology. And so my kind of principal mandate at um, the Human Flourishing Program is to help promote that that integrative work to bring the, the disciplines into closer conversation. Uh, and so it's a great, it's a great uh, position uh, for a sort of born generalist, uh, which is definitely definitely my sort of intellectual disposition. And I think that comes through in the book as well, uh, that there's a, 
you know, a, a chapter, sort of a, a chapter for per subdiscipline in a way, you know, that kind of a uh, runs runs the gamut of the theological uh, disciplines. Um, and yeah, so I mean, the, the I guess I can tell you a little bit about the genesis of the book. Um, it's come together very quickly, I will say. I mean, so so last year I was a uh, a postdoc at Baylor's Institute for Studies of Religion, um, and I came there just after finishing the the Doctor of Theology program at Duke Divinity School, where I did all of my my grad training, master's and, and doctorate. Um, I finished there in 2019 and went to Baylor to join a grant funded project on the theme of accountability as a virtue. Um, and when I arrived at Baylor, I mean, really, I hadn't, I hadn't done a lot of work to be honest, uh, in, in terms of, in terms of publishing at least, uh, in the, in the area of ethics or theological anthropology. So it was sort of new, new terrain for me. Um, but my mandate was just to sit in my office and read and write all day. I was just a research you know, it was a research position. And so I started working on uh, a series of essays on, on, on the theme of justice um, uh, and thinking, trying to think about accountability as a, as a subtype of justice, which is the first chapter of the, of the book. And I discovered after I'd been writing for six months or so that I had the, uh, the skeleton of a book sort of developing. And, and so I thought, well, you know, what the heck might as well try to actually make something of it. And so I, I, I sent a, I sent a proposal into Bloomsbury and they were, you know, uh, they were, they were very encouraging about the, about the project. And, um, here we are. So it's been about, you know, a little under 18 months, I think, and, and from start to finish in terms of my, so, so, which is, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, I mean, you know, probably won't happen again, to be honest, but it's wonderful to have the opportunity just to sit, to sit, you know, in a room and, and do nothing but, uh, but read and write, you know, for, um, for, uh, yeah, for a whole year, essentially. Um, so that's where the book, that's where the book came from. Well, Dr. Case, we really appreciate you giving us some time today. Let's just begin kind of with a general question. Um, what do you mean by this phrase, accountable animal? So the title of your book is uh, The Accountable Animal, Justice, Justification, and Judgment. And according to Amazon, this comes out on May the 6th. 2021. You can let us know if that's, so that's still, that's correct. Okay. So, so May 6th. Um, but yeah, what do you mean by uh, the, uh, the accountable animal as, as a descriptor for uh, the human being? Sure. And I'll just say, um, Brandon and Jordan do call me Brendan. Um, Dr. Dr. Case is definitely somebody else. I don't know who that is exactly, but I'm still. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. But, uh, yeah. So the accountable animal, I mean, it's a, you know, I have a, I have, um, I have something of a verbal tick, I think, you know, for, for alliteration, I guess everybody does. Uh, so, so in part it's, it's, it's pithy and catchy, but it's meant to be, um, it's meant to be a play on the, uh, the, the sort of hoary definition of, of human beings as, as rational animals. You know, this goes back to, to Aristotle, at least, uh, that we're, uh, we're the animals whose, whose specific difference is that, is that we reason. Um, and one, one way of thinking about the the sort of core idea of the book is that uh, is that another way of of getting a grip on the the sort of specific difference that sets us apart from other animals is that uh, we have we have not just not just capacities for but a, but a positive need for accountability in a number of in a number of areas and we we can't actually become uh, the the we we can't flourish as the kind of creatures that 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 we are. Uh, unless we embrace that calling to accountability, um, one, I mean, one just just at a, at a very at a very fundamental level, you know, one one 
one theme of the first chapter of the book is that uh, we can't acquire language unless we uh, unless we, we 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 accept our need for accountability in relation to each other. That 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 uh, as as Auden says, words are for those with promises to keep. Um, and and uh, the the act of the act of acquiring and 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 using a natural language is is uh, an act of learning how to to hold others accountable and, and be held accountable for the, um, for the, the, the assertions that, that one makes, um, and the other kinds of speech acts one undertakes, obviously too. promises are another example. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the accountable animal, um, it's, a, yeah, it's just, a, it's a, it's a way of thinking about this calling, um, to be, and, and it, it gets, it gets at the same, the same basic principle of saying that we are, a rational or, or as Aristotle also puts it, a political animal, um, you know, in the, in the, in the politics that we, uh, we, we're, we're, we're a distinctively social animal and that, and that comes, that, that, that creates a, a, um, a, uh, there's, there's, there's a, there's a distinctive path of development we have to, we have to proceed along, which is, which is radically different. I mean, obviously different even from other primates. And and what it involves centrally is 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 this capacity for accountability. I think. So one of the comments that you make in that introduction is talking about how we are rational only because we are accountable. So could I, and I know you've touched on it a little bit, particularly I think with the language piece. But can you tease that out just a little bit? How is it that accountability is really the foundation for something like that? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, that, that's a yeah, that's 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 a great question. Um, and language is, is at the heart of that claim, I think. I mean, this is re- really, I guess, the way I would put it. And this is just to expand a bit, I suppose, on what I said before is that reasoning, and maybe I would qu- I'll qualify it and just say beyond you know uh, really rudimentary uh, sort of n- not very interesting forms. You know, uh, uh, there are obviously boundary cases here. You know, toddlers don't possess much, I have a two-year-old, you know, who doesn't possess much language, you know, uh, <laughs> but as, uh, uh, and so, so we grow into this, of course, it's a question of more or less, uh, and it's not a, there's not a bright line threshold that you cross where suddenly, you know, you become, uh, like fully rational, like Athena springing from the head of Zeus or something like that. But, uh, we grow into as, as we, as we grow up and grow into our, our faculties for reasoning, we do so by way of, uh, entering into this particular kind of, of, um, game, you might, I mean, in a, in a sort of Wittgensteinian sense, it's a game of giving and asking for reasons. Um, and that's what it, that's what it means to, to develop a, a, a our faculties of reasoning, our fat, the, the faculties that are distinctive to being a rational animal. And those games are embedded in and made possible by practices of language. You have to have a natural language in order to engage in those games. Um, and what language consists in, what makes language possible is, uh, our ability to hold each other accountable. Um, so that's what, and and what I mean by that is, uh, the way you, the way you work out what, what you do, even if you're not doing this deliberately, but what you do when you work out what someone means by saying, uh, it's raining, for instance, it's raining right now. And Boston, as it always is, uh, <laughs> this time of year, it seems, uh, what, it, what's involved in understanding what I mean in saying it's raining is understanding what I commit myself to, what you can hold me to account for, for having undertaken, you know? So, uh, 
So when I say it's raining, I'm prima facie at least committed to the further assertion, say, that the ground is wet, you know? Um, and and you, you're allowed, by virtue of my having made that assertion, it's raining, you're allowed to hold me to account for the ground being wet, right? I mean, at least, at least for my belief that the ground is wet. And if I'm not willing to make that further commitment, then I don't know what I've said, actually. I don't know what it means to say it's raining if I don't, if I don't understand, at least implicitly, that it commits me to saying that the ground is wet. You know, and so so accountability is sort of wired in. It's sort of baked into the the practices of giving and asking for reasons that are um, that sort of make up the acquisition and use of language. Let's talk a bit about how accountability is related to justice. Um, maybe you can, in describing that, compare it to some other ways of of understanding justice. Um, I think you in in the book you you refer to. Um, justice as rights rendering. Um, so maybe there's more than just a, a matter of duty here, but there's also um, more talk about rights. So unpack that for us a bit of uh, this relationship between accountability and justice. Yeah, sure. So you're certainly right that there are a number of, of kind of, there are like, a, there are a number of families of positions, I guess I'd say, uh, about the nature of justice, just in the Western philosophical tradition. Um, and one, one, uh, venerable definition of justice uh, is that it's it's uh, rendering to each uh, his his due or his right. And there's this ticklish. It, it tend it, it it becomes adopted in sort of in into the the philosophical tradition, mostly in Latin. And so the the key word there is use, rendering to each his use. Um, and this is a sort of a ticklish term. It means essentially both both due or desert and right. Um, we could get into that, I suppose, later if you wanted, but they're complicated debates about when exactly it acquires each of these shades of meaning, you know, but, um, and so Cicero is sort of the, the person who puts it on the map really in a big way, um, that definition of justice as a, as a positive uh, definition. And it gets adopted most importantly, um, by a, a Roman jurist, a second century Roman jurist named Ulpian, um, whose writings were incorporated into this big digest of laws uh put together by the emperor justinian um and so from late antiquity down into the middle ages and beyond it's sort of the standard definition of justice so in you know aquinas summa theologiae for instance this is the definition that he starts with as as given you know he takes it as read basically augustine also takes it for granted he quotes the definition in a bunch of places by way of cicero um and but what's interesting about that definition is it actually goes back to Plato. Plato's the first person I know of who formulates it as a definition of justice, but he formulates it very early in the Republic uh, as a definition to be rejected. It's the second definition it's proposed by a guy named Polemarchus, and uh, and they reject it very quickly as inadequate. And they they move on to eventually to Plato's preferred definition of justice, which is which is thought out not in terms of of rights and duties, but in terms of, of, uh, the harmony of parts within a whole, you know? And so the, um, justice is, is each part minding its own business is the way they end up putting it. Um, and it's not actually, I'll say, I mean, you know, there are, there are, um, there are always difficult questions with any platonic dialogue about, you know, uh, uh, how adequate any final position is and how adequate Plato, frankly, thinks any of his final positions are, you know, but it's not really obvious to me, actually, that if you try to spell out what, what, if you try to sort of cash out that final definition, you know, in a more robust way, I think it actually does end up bringing you probably closer than Plato would lead you to think, 
to the Ciceronian definition, to the, the, the original rejected definition. Um, uh, each, you know, for each part to mind its own business, uh, the, uh, each individual state of mind his own business. He also has to recognize what, what his neighbor's business is and, and leave him to mind that, you know? And so you can, I think you, it's very hard, I think, to, to get, to get away from, uh, from a sort of general sense that, that we have obligations to treat each other fairly. I mean, this is really the heart of, 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 uh, this is the heart of, it's at, it's at the heart. It's at, it's a concern that's at the heart of most conceptions of justice, I think, including, including Plato's, but it's brought up very clearly by this, this Ciceronian idea that we, we ought to, we ought to treat people effectively. What it, what it says is treat people the way they, they deserve to be treated, uh, treat them in accord with their, with their desserts. Um, and so that means, so you can think of that either in terms of, of your own, you as the agent, you know, your duties towards some other person. So other things being equal, you know, it would be unjust of me to take your iPad and smash it, you know, um, uh, it's not mine to smash, you know, that would be the, uh, and, and, and I think these are, we, we all have intuitions more or less along these lines, you know, that there'd be something, you'd do something wrong if you did that. It's not just, it would be sad, you know, or it would reduce the amount of utility in the world, but it would be wrong. You know, there'd be some interpersonal wrong, wrongness involved, uh, on my part toward you. And you can also, uh, the, the there's a there's a principle which which the philosopher Nicholas Walterstorff articulates really nicely, which he calls the the, the correlativity of rights and duties, which basically means that um, that uh, rights and duties come as packages. In general, there are some there are some exceptions, but they're 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 kind of eccentric and not and not not that important really. For I mean, there are things like you know the if there's a duty to give to give to charity, say you know. Uh, who has or did someone have a right? You know that's correlated to that. Or we, so there, there are interesting complications. But in general, if I have a right, if I have a duty not to smash your iPad, then by that very fact, you have a right against me uh, uh, for your iPad not to be smashed by me. I'm sorry. Oh my gosh. I need to find a way to disable that. <laughs> so yeah, and so this is the way I think this is the right way of this is the right way of thinking about justice. Essentially, is in terms of is in terms of correlated sets of rights and duties. Um, and uh, um, rights talk obviously is a is a topic that that is it's apt to get people very excited these days. A lot of people really don't like rights talk. Um, typically i think this is its form of shadow boxing sort of i mean there's a you know you you set up a really absurd indefensible version of rights you know that you you then polemicize against uh and uh but and but i do think if you if you put it in that if you if you just put it as simply as the as i put it in the example with the ipad it's 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 pretty hard to get away from this language i think it's quite important actually um and in particular something else walter storff emphasized which i think is very very it's it's crucial is that uh, if you don't have rights talk, you lack a way to bring what he calls the patient dimension of the moral world into view. So uh, duty talk lets you lets you talk about agents, right? If you if you and this it, it fits nicely with the kind of the the contemporary uh, fascination with 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 virtue talk, you know. So uh, virtue talk essentially is all about agents as well, you know. So this is what it means to live a a fulfilled life. But what this what this misses, what it screens out, it's nothing wrong with that. I mean, this is actually it's a, it's very important to talk about virtues and duties for sure. But what it screens out is the is the dimension of the moral life that involves people. Well, essentially, people getting screwed over. You know, so I mean, if you think about the think about 
uh, I mean, the, the Holocaust is an easy example, of course, always. Uh, but but just think about the Holocaust for a second, right? So it w- wouldn't it be absurd for someone to try to assess what was wrong with the Holocaust and and talk only about how the Nazis failed to live fully virtuous lives and failed and, and failed to discharge their duties in an adequate way, you know? Who cares about? I mean, this is a fundamental point which you want to say, like, hey, for you know, who cares about the Nazis? You know, what about that? What about all the Jews and everyone else who was killed? You know, they were wronged, uh, right? And and you need rights talk to bring that into view. Um, and if you don't have a, uh, it's it's hard to see what you don't have what you don't have words for. You know, um, so it's very important, I think, that we keep we keep rights talk in the mix and our moral vocabulary as a way of as a way of, of balancing out the agent and the patient dimensions, you know? And so this is a, and uh, yeah, so anyway, that's, I mean, I guess that's sort of a long winded way of, um, way of, uh, of answering your question. Maybe I haven't actually fully answered your question. Sorry, but I mean the, to wind up that, that answer, I suppose, uh, accountability fits here, uh, right. Because, uh, account, accountability as a disposition, well, not as a structured Jordan, as you mentioned, you know the accountability group, you know, which I also grew up with um, in in the Southern Baptist Church that I that I I grew up in and 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 loved actually. I mean, I had good friends. You know, we were in a I was in an accountability group with friends for for years and and really uh, you know really cherished those memories. But but so not not accountability in the sense of a, a kind of backwards looking structure. But there's also forward looking accountability as, as as a disposition, a disposition to live accountably. Um, in relation to, to others who who rightly bear authority over you, um, and this is an important this is an important aspect of the virtue of justice, I think, and it's sort of in the, it's in the, it's a neglected aspect, frankly, because again we don't we don't t- typically use the word in this way, and and what you don't have a have a word for, you have a hard time seeing, um, but it's very useful, I think, to to be able to to get in get into view this aspect of our of our moral lives, you know, that we we do in fact. Uh, we do in fact bear a range of obligations and, uh, and let's call that the virtue of accountability. I mean, it's a, so that, that's the basic thought. That's how they fit. That's how it fits in with the, with, with talk about justice. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think there's two big ideas that I really wanted to get your opinion on or really pick your brain on. And the first one is you do, you have an entire chapter devoted to justification and its relationship to accountability. So I think you talk through verses like Romans 2.13 and Romans 3.20 about how we're being justified by grace apart from the works of the law, etc. And how does that, I guess, influence our, our thoughts on what it means to actually be accountable as a human? And then uh, the other one that I wanted to pick your brain on a little bit is your problem of post-mortem accountability. I mean, I think this chapter was probably the most fascinating one in the book, and it's one that, as a Protestant, I think is probably the most intriguing to me, um, be, just simply because I don't know a lot of Protestants who are affirming uh, what you do here. So I think you pretty much say being personally accountable in some way for the consequences of one's own sin is not only consistent with being forgiven for them by Christ's merits, but it is among the conditions for the possibility of receiving the forgiveness at all. And then you go on to explain uh, the problem that is everlasting torment and how that's not genuine accountability for sin, since, I guess, accountability must always be proportioned to one's just, I guess, what they deserve and such. So 
I think both those those two things are really, really fascinating. I think you did a really interesting job there on the postmortem stuff. So walk us through, I guess, first the piece on justification and how it relates to accountability, and then we can go to postmortem. Yeah, no, happy to. Sure. Uh, yeah. So I'll just. I mean, I suppose maybe the place to start is to is just to read um, Romans two thirteen and three twenty. Uh, so you know, Romans is a Romans obviously is is a it is a long and difficult and interesting letter. Uh, I, I don't I don't pretend to have settled any. It's, it's it would be ludicrous to think that you know one chapter in any book could settle really any significant debate about it but resolving a kind of classic tension in the interpretation of Romans that's centered on Romans 2:13 okay and so Romans 2 is this long discussion of the uh it's a long discussion of uh the situation of someone who's not identified uh whom Paul begins addressing in Romans 2 as someone who's without excuse because of the way he judges others. And, and, you know, we don't need to get into the, I suppose just to say it very briefly in summary, um, the view, the, the reading of this chapter that I think is right is that Paul is engaged in a, in a polemic here against a, a rival uh, Christian missionary who, who happens to be uh, who, who like Paul is a Jew, but whose mission to the Gentiles is very different from Paul's. Um, it's a, it's a Torah observant. Uh, mission to the Gentiles. Paul's is like a Torah light mission. Uh, some people say Torah free. It's kind of, you know, there are some things if you take, depending on how seriously you think he takes the act, you know, the, 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 the sort of conciliar decision in Acts 15, there are some obligations which are broadly sort of Torah obligations that, that Paul imposes on his, on his, uh, on his Gentile congregations. But, but it's a much, it's a much lighter version of Torah than, than what his, his, his rival advocates. And, uh, uh, the rival in particular wants all Gentiles to become Jews, be, be circumcised, take up kosher, you know, kosher uh, observances, Sabbath, Sabbath observances. Um, Paul, for a variety of reasons that, you know, again, somewhat complicated, says, hell no, you know, and so and, and what you get is is first Galatians and then Romans. And but what's interesting is in the course of this of this diatribe against where he's sort of reducing his opponent's position to absurdity and in, in the second chapter of Romans, Paul Paul makes this, frankly, very surprising admission in Romans two thirteen. He says, uh, "For it's not the hearers of the uh, for not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law." There, there are noisy echoes here, actually, of uh, passages from James, uh, both both from 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 James two, uh, which has its own discussion of justification, of course, right? Uh, and uh, um, I say it's surprising because you know if you particularly if you've sort of grown up with Paul in any tradition that shaped that's sort of downstream from the reformation. And this is true, certainly for me, um, you know, what you're accustomed to hearing repeated over and over again is that justification is, is by faith alone and not by works. Right. And so this is, you know, one of the banner examples. I mean, sort of, you know, if you want to, if you want a proof text for this, there are plenty of passages you could cite, but a very important one is from Romans 3.20, as you mentioned. Uh, Therefore, by works of a law uh, shall no f- uh, flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So you read Romans 3.20 straight, you know, you, uh, you, you take that on its face, and then you find ways to, you can put this more or less charitably, effectively marginalize Romans 2.13, or sort of massage it. Paul here is really taking you know, doers of the law as a kind of 
as a kind of metonymy for people who have faith, because people who have faith, in fact, do the law. And so what really matters for justification is faith, even though, you know, faith produces works. And um, so he's still really talking about justification by faith. You know, that that's that's one sort of standard reading. Another, another, another common reading is to say, well, what Paul is saying is doers of the law would be justified if there were any, but of course there aren't. This is the whole point of Romans 3, you know, and so he's setting up this sort of, you know, uh, covenant of works sort of approach in Romans 1 to 4 or Romans 1 to 3, which collapses on itself, you know, it falls apart. And then you see that you need grace. And so Romans 3.20 is the answer, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, again, it would take, you'd, I'd have to sort of reproduce the argument of the chapter, I suppose, to show why I think these are these these approaches don't really work. Um, but I don't, they don't really work, I think. Uh, the biggest reason they don't work, to be honest, is that right in the middle of, right at the end of Romans 2, you get Paul describing a group of his own converts who, in fact, uh, keep the righteous requirements of the law, the way he, he puts it, you know, because they have the, because they have the spirit. Uh, so it looks like he's talking about the sort of people he's describing in Romans 2.13. Um, and uh, so the basic thought in this, in this chapter is to sort of run the argument the other way. Um, what if we take Romans 2.13 at face value and then ask ourselves if there's a, a sort of revisionist reading of Romans 3.20 that might, that might make it consistent? Um, you know, with, 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 with 2.13. And the, the approach that I adopt that works of a law is um, grammatically uh, a, a subjective genitive. It's, so it's a possessive phrase, um, which is, it's not, it's not typically read that way. It's typically read works of the law, but a perfectly natural grammatical reading of, of that phrase um, just on its face is to treat it as a, as a possessive phrase. So the laws works, works that the law does. Um, and you, you know, there's a parallel debate, of course, which people are probably more familiar with, uh, about how to construe certain occurrences of the phrase, uh, pistis Christu, you know, faith often translated faith in Christ, but there's a, you know, again, another kind of camp, which says we should read this actually as, as again, a subjective genitive Christ faith. Um, and so in between the two verses evaporates because they're about completely different subjects. The, the, the agents in view are, are different. There's in 2.13, the doers of a law are us. You know, again, there's, there's some fairly detailed kind of exegetical work that goes into making sense of this in the, in the chapter. But I might just, just, you know, to illustrate the plausibility of this approach, because it, it probably, probably will seem uh, implausible to a lot of your listeners, you know, on its, on its face. So 3.19 says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For no human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Okay, so that's 319 to 20. And what's really interesting is, is that in 319, the subject of the verb initially is the law. The law, the law is doing something, right? In 319, the law speaks, right? Um, probably what the law is speaking is this whole catena of quotations that has just preceded this verse, right? So these, these quotations about how, you know, uh, there's no one, no, none is righteous, you know, everyone's mouth is like a lying adder or whatever, you know, these, these sort of gruesome, uh, catena of quotations from the Psalms and Isaiah. Um, that's what the law says. It's the law says that to the world in order to, again, do some, do something else, um, uh, although, although here it's, it's put passively so that every mouth may be stopped. Um, the law 
the law speaks to us in such a way that it it convicts us of sin, silences us, you know, uh, before before God. Um, and then Paul goes on to say, uh, therefore, uh, no one will be justified by ergonomu, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So on the the standard reading, the you know the the attributive genitive reading legal works reading, you know, where, where, where works of law describes us, you get, the, you have this weird back and forth in Romans three nineteen to 20, where the law is the subject in three nineteen, And then for the first half of three twenty, we're the subject. Paul's switches focus from what the law does to what we do for some reason. And then, and then back in the second half of three twenty to the law as a subject, uh, through the law comes knowledge of sin. A couple of other points of reference, just to sort of orient you know uh, a reader to this to, to how this help helps make sense of, of the rest of paul's corpus you know but a very important statement from paul about about uh, the law maybe his most important statement is in uh second corinthians 3 uh 3 6 uh uh for the letter kills he says but the spirit gives life right and this is a this is a pretty decent summary i think of paul's whole theology of uh of sort of theology of Israel, theology of grace and election and salvation, uh, that the the letter here, obviously meaning the Torah, kills us. Um, and you get this worked out very elaborately in Romans seven. Romans seven is a kind of is a kind of theoretical unpacking of that statement. You know that uh, it's not that the the law doesn't kill us because the law is bad, but the law kills us because we are fleshly and we're sold under sin, and sin takes advantage of the commandment. And through the commandment kills us, right? That's what Romans seven says. Um, so, you know, the 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 statement in Romans three is a kind of again a sort of a d- different way of putting the same basic idea that you get in in Second Corinthians Second Corinthians three six, and then dr- sort of dramatically un- unpacked in Romans seven, which is that uh, what the law does basically is kill us, um, and that's and that's why we need the Spirit. We need we need Christ's work. Um, you know, uh, impressed on us, uh, by the, by the power of the spirit. Um, so I think if you, if you take it, you know, if you, if you, uh, if you read it this way, it's, it, it, it simplifies a lot of things, you know, um, uh, in, 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 in making sense of, of Paul. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to chew on. I mean, (laughs) sorry, I know. Yeah. Cause I know most, most of our listeners, are, are not familiar with that reading and are, you know, I'm sure we're going to get all kinds of <laughs> messages about it and everything yeah, else. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that should, that should uh, provoke some good conversation. Maybe we can transition to, you know, accountability and, and, and this, well, I guess post-mortem accountability and you, in the book you put forward um, a view of purgatory. Right. So maybe if you don't mind sketch out um, why you've gone that route, um, and, and putting forth this view. And then also in the book, you, you do sketch out a few, um, objections and then why you think those objections, one's from Chrysostom and then other, Mm -hmm. um, Protestant, um, objections to purgatory and why you think those, um, just don't do enough, uh, to go against your view. Just unpack all that for us if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you know, I've got another difficult, you know, sort of, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of, throwing myself into, into, into documentary <laughs> waters here, you know, of course, and I'm conscious of that, but, you know, and I'll say this is, I mean, maybe a useful point, at, uh, which is to say that, um, you know, I think of this book as a kind of, as, as written for, you know, a, a, a fully reunited church, which is not 
not visible, at least, you know, anywhere uh, in the world today, sadly. Um, and so, you know, I've, I've tried to write it in a way that's, I mean, I'm, I'm, um, my, my, my wife and I have, have worshiped in, in Anglican or Episcopal churches for the last decade, you know, or a little more. And, uh, that doesn't say a lot, to be honest, about, you know, anything. Uh, uh, you, you, it's very hard to, uh, except for certain, you know, really, really hardcore Anglicans, you know, you don't you don't know a lot about s- someone's theological views just by knowing that they go to an Anglican church, you know, frankly, and that, which, is, uh, <laughs> which is either a virtue or a vice, I suppose, of that, of, the, of those confessions. But um, so, you know, I've, I've tried to I've tried to write a book that is that is um, that is that that puts that puts ecumenical pressure on i I hope on a number on a number of confessions you know uh maybe probably more more pressure in general on 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 uh protestants than catholics catholics or orthodox you know but um uh so 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 the the ambition of that for that chapter is is that it would be a kind of uh a kind of it would sort of stake out you know a a a uh a candidate position for sort of ecumenical uh, reconciliation around, around the question of, of postmortem purification. You know, this is obviously an issue that's divided not just um, not just Catholics and Protestants, but also Catholics, Latin Christians, you know, Western Christians from from Christians in the East as well, over how to understand uh, the the idea that we're we're purged after death uh, from something. You know, what is that exactly? Uh, and so, you know, I guess I. I as far as the the motivation, I mean, this is what one one sort of fundamental question, I guess, is what's the motivation for for wondering whether we should we should believe in purgatory, you know, and and uh, uh, to put it in a sort of simple minded way, I guess the motivation, as I see it, is uh, that that most of us are are uh, at best very imperfectly sanctified at the time we die, um, and. Uh, so that's one that's 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 one premise, I guess, you know, to 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 start from another and another premise to start from, which, again, seems plausible, is that uh, in so far as we can tell in general, in the ordinary course of things, um, sanctification takes time. Um, you know, uh, again, I, I, you know, all the evidence we have suggests that, you know, and if you put those two together, uh, they imply they create a sort of, I would think, a strong a priori expectation that most of us will need to be sanctified for some period of time, or whatever that means exactly. And I don't, you know, I, I think we should try to be, we should try to be as vague as possible about the details. You know, I mean, there's a, I love Dante. I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't, you know, Dante's purgatory is glorious, but you know, uh, uh, saying, you know, I believe in purgatory does not commit anybody or should not commit anybody to, you know. Uh, to the verisimilitude of like everything in Dante's purgatory, you know, for instance. Um, so, so that's sort of the, that's kind of the, the, the starting point, I guess, for the discussion, you know, uh, unless you have some really good reason to expect to deny it, I think we should all just expect that that's more or less how it's going to, how it's going to work. Um, uh, and, and there are some, not, not a ton, but some, uh, New Testament passages, passages which I think are quite suggestive along these lines, and the two principal ones I discuss in the chapter are are First uh, Corinthians three fifteen, especially, um, 
and the surrounding context to some extent. And then um, Matthew five twenty six um, about the uh, the last four. So so Matthew three fifteen is the or sorry First Corinthians three fifteen is the is the uh, the fire of judgment we pass through. The the key phrase really is is uh, sa- saved through fire. Um, you know that there's this image. I suppose it might be so. The the this is this great image Paul develops of of uh, Christians. He's thinking in particular about church leaders. It's drawn from from the book of Malachi. The even even the even the building materials. The day of the Lord, Paul says, comes like a wall of fire that sweeps over this construction, uh, and it 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 preserves the good materials that have been built on the foundation of Jesus, and it destroys the 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 bad buildings you know what's been built poorly with with straw or wood um and the person who's built badly paul says will be saved but as if through fire um <clears throat> and so you know again there's there's some there's some there's some sort of exegetical spade work that goes in into working out exactly what what does this mean you know the and so there's i mean i'm i'm a lot of it's not original to me frankly but uh it's pretty good evidence that when paul um, uses the expression saved through, you know, sozo plus dia, the preposition dia uh, in Greek. Um, every other time he uses it, it's in an instrumental sense, you know, so you're saved by means of, you know, by means of the spirit often or by means of Christ or by means of water, those kinds of things. But um, so, you know, it, it, what it seems to indicate is a kind of purification through fire, you know, um, that, and, it, and I think there's, there's good reasons to think even internal to first Corinthians that the, the fire in view here is, is, is Jesus the actions of 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 everyone when he returns, which is exactly the same thought, you know that that uh, the fire discloses the work, you know, in First Corinthians three. It's the same. So the 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 fire is the presence of the presence of Christ, um, which for sinners is agonizing. You know, that's the that's the idea. It's not that there's so it's not that there are, there are two places, you know, um, like one place below the earth or whatever on an island at the Antipodes, you know, as Dante thought. Uh, and then, and then a place called heaven where Jesus is. Um, there are there are two modes of experience, um, at least two. We could talk about hell, I suppose, in a, in a minute. Um, but uh, um, and one of them is uh, the experience of someone who, who I guess to put it, I mean to put it simply, someone uh, who loves Jesus and wants to be close to him, but 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 can't yet, you know, uh, because he he's. Or who, or who can, but who finds it extremely painful. So, you know, I think that that, that that's the that's the basic that's the the basic uh, view. You know, is that is that uh, we should expect sanctification to take we should expect sanctification to continue after death, and we should expect it to take time. You know, and the standard, you know, frankly, the standard sort of um, uh, the standard objections. These, these go back a lot of them to the reformers um and can be found in in somewhat different form even forms even in the east although they tend to be a little they tend to be less objections to the idea of purification frankly coming from the east than to the idea of it of, of thinking of it in terms of debt you know which is sort of sort of the second half of the chapter but the sort of standard uh set of protestant objections to the idea of postmortem purification tend to turn uh, they 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 will they all rely as far as I can tell pretty heavily on the idea 
that sanctification is instantaneous after death and that somehow putting off the body is, is, is intrinsically sanctifying. Um, which if true has some, some troubling consequences, I think, I mean, you have to sort of think through the logic of this position. I mean, it, it, it's hard to see how that, how you get away from, from, uh, the entailment of, of that view that, uh, the body is the sole cause of sin. Um, which is, which is, I think for a lot of reasons, not, not the case, you know, there, there are a number of reasons to say this is even, even obviously our, our bodies now are not the spiritual bodies that we'll be raised in, you know, and I mean, they don't, don't need to make any equations there by any means, but, but, um, uh, Paul himself, you know, has, has a number of different ways of, of, of talking about, you know, the, uh, um, the flesh as a, as a, as a reality of, of enmity with God, you know, and, and often there it's in cognitive terms. So he talks in Galatians about the, the mind of the flesh is at war with God, you know, the, the and that's, that's, uh, um, he's not, I think, talking about a second, the second center of consciousness or something, you know, within our, I mean, he's just talking about us, you know, about the whole person, um, uh, body and soul as, 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 uh, an enemy with God. And so, you know, I mean, I think that the, the, um, you know, again, I, I, the way, the way that I, I, my, my sort of basic approach here, I suppose, is sort of to shift, is to, is to shift the burden in a way, you know? So, I mean, I think the, 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 uh, I shouldn't even, I won't even say the standard Protestant view, but at least a, co- a common Protestant view, certainly the one that I, I, you know, grew up with is that, um, purgatory, you know, the idea seems like obviously unbiblical, uh, speculation and you know you have to like meet a pretty high burden in order to demonstrate that it's plausible even you know much less you know like a requirement of the of the faith uh and my view is something like the opposite i think really you know that that, uh um put in just that in those sort of basic terms that i've outlined so far um it's a it's a a priori a plausible position which has you know, some, some, some biblical warrants and, uh, it's a, it should be the default position until you dem until someone demonstrates otherwise, you know, I guess that's kind of my, my view. So on your view, um, how, how would you interpret those passages where, you know, Paul talks about, um, you know, departing and being with Christ and, you know, being absent from the body and present with the Lord, do you, yeah, what is your interpretation of those passages? Because I, I, obviously your understanding of the intermediate state is going to be much different with a view of, of purgatory. But um, so do you think that that's only for, is Paul just only talking about a select group of people there? Or just unpack how you would interpret those passages? No, great. Yeah, great question. Um, no, I think he means everybody there. Um, you know, and again, I would just, what I would emphasize is that, uh, I think the most plausible way of thinking about purgatory is not as a distinct place, you know, set over against heaven, say, um, but rather as a distinct mode of experiencing the presence of Christ. Um, and so, uh, so it's, it's all, it's all one place, you know, I guess that's what I would say. Everyone's in, everyone's in Christ's presence, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so we, you know, we're, we're, we're with, we're with Christ, um, even in purgatory, um, Actually, what makes purgatory so awful is that with Christ. I guess that's what I would say. I mean, that's the that's the 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 what, what's 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 unendurable about it is that we have to 
And the reason it's so much worse, frankly, than being sanctified, or at least the reason it sounds to me so much worse than being, than just going ahead and being, and being as sanctified as possible here is that, uh, is that here we have a veil drawn, you know, there's a veil drawn between, between us and the, the fleshly presence of Christ, whatever you think about the Eucharist, even say, you know, the, 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 there's a, there's a veil of accidents, even, you know, even on, even if you, even if you believe in transubstantiation, if Paul's right, you know, after death, there's no veil anymore. We're immediately in his, in his presence. And we have to, in all, in all of our, you know, we, we come in, we come into the, into the throne room sort of bedraggled and mud spotted and, and, uh, unkempt, you know, and we have to, we have to get on with, the. Uh, the business of, of sanctification uh, in his, in his very presence, uh, which is, you can, you know, at least, uh, to, so to me, I mean, I think this is the, this is the reason, this is where you get the, the sort of uh, the, in, the intuition, which gets worked up obviously into, into variously gruesome, you know, sort of folk tableau of, of purgatory as a place of intense suffering. You know, I mean, I think that the, the intuition that that's sort of being worked out there is, is right. Uh, that it's, it's a, um, well, as he, I mean, as the, the author of Hebrews says, you know, it's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a living God, you know, that it's, a uh, like God, God and he also says he's quoting Deuteronomy, but the author of Hebrews says our God, God is a consuming fire. You know, I think it's Hebrews nine. Um, so that's the, that's the, uh, so yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to take those passages on, on board. Uh, I think they can be integrated with, uh, the, the, the fire language, you know, that you get in, in first Corinthians three. And this is all so interesting. Um, and I, I know we're running out of time, but if you could give a mini discussion on why it is that you argue that everlasting torment is not genuine accountability for sin. I thought that was one of the most interesting arguments that you made. And probably I would say 90% of our listeners are going to say, what, what, explain that to me. So talk a little bit to that. Sure. Yeah. Really, really deep waters to, to jump into, uh, uh, ecumenically and doctrinally. But, um, so, so I frame it as a, as a sort of dispute among three, the sort of three main candidates, the eternal conscious torment, uh, position, certainly in the, certainly in the West and in most of the East, you know, for at least the last 1500 years, uh, and, 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 and in a lot of ways, even, even, even earlier, um, a second option, uh, is annihilationism as it's sometimes called or conditional, uh, immortality, uh, which is the view that those who are everlastingly uh, uh, damned, if there are any, you know, are, are just annihilated. They're just brought to nothing. So they don't suffer everlasting. Elves are not necessarily punished, you know, in an ongoing way. Uh, so that's annihilationism. And then the third option, of course, is universalism, which is that everybody, everybody gets saved ultimately. And so I shared, I mean, you know, to be honest, I, I probably even two years ago would have shared the the intuition you're describing, you know, most of your listeners as, as bringing to this discussion that, you know, whatever else could be said about the, about the various positions, you know, whatever the merits exegetically or, or morally or whatever, um, at the very least, you know, the, the eternal conscious torment position certainly offers the most robust, the most terrifying, and that, you know, whatever it's demerits, at least that position, what it has going for it is taking sin very seriously, you know, that's the, that, uh, and so, and I, and there's, that's an understandable intuition, obviously. I mean, it's, um, it is a, a truly horrifying prospect, the thought of, you know, a, a punishment that even in its 50 billionth year, however you count time, you know, down there or whatever is, is only just beginning, you know, um, always only just beginning. Uh, 
literally inconceivable. You know, we can't, uh, or, or at least, or at least unimaginable. You know, we we have no no frame of reference for for an experience like that. Um, and so, I mean, the 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 heart of that of my my criticism of that view in that in that section of the of the of that of that chapter um, is that what it misses what what the what the ECT account misses uh, in its in its uh, in its sort of pretensions to justice is that uh, g- genuine justice requires some some proportion between the the evil act committed and the the culpability of the actor um, and you know certainly i i don't i don't want to diminish the gravity of sin by any means uh every and and frankly the you know probably much closer in its enormity to murder than you know uh than than to what we typically think of as as uh as the as the real the real weight you know of 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 a sin like a lie um so you know i think and i think any any position on on postmortem accountability ultimate accountability needs to needs to take very seriously that we're we're much more likely to discount the real gravity of sin than we are to than we are to overestimate it so even but so so i offer that as as a disclaimer because i think the next thing to say which we do have to take seriously is that uh nobody no humans at least we can bracket i guess for for for, uh for this discussion questions about angelic humans at least no humans not even adam and eve um if you think of, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, of the, of the first sin as an event occurring at some datable point in time, you know, um, uh, no human being has ever sinned with perfect culpability. Um, uh, in, in the sense that every human being, Adam and Eve, even who are in the best position you could be in, I would think, you know, if you, if you take them as, as, as a, as a unfallen and even, and even endowed with certain graces as, as the, the theological tradition has often has often interpreted them to be uh even 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 they're uh plainly not in the full possession of of the they're not in possession of the full range of knowledge you know that that you need to be ideally uh it's not it's not possible for us as finite actors to commit uh to commit a sin which would which would merit a truly everlasting punishment so this would be i mean i think this is the this is the uh uh this is the moral dimension of the argument um that and you can i mean you can uh there are there are versions of of the the everlasting conscious torment model which don't require the deliberate imposition you know of an everlasting sentence say right so i mean and this is there's there's a there's another prong in this in this chapter which which sort of tries to deal with that there's a sort of if you have what's called a libertarian conception of freedom uh where the the individual is 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 free in a in a robust sense to resist god you know indefinitely um you can imagine someone and this is the this is frankly probably the dominant account of hell i would think today um among among people who defend the the ect model uh you know you the thing to say is that the doors are locked from the inside you know as as cs lewis famously said uh and what i think it, i think that the the difficulty here and this is where uh the the my view i guess is that if you think through the implications of that position uh 
the ECT model always ends up collapsing effectively into annihilationism. Um, and so uh, the example I use in the book is another one drawn from Lewis from his great divorce. You know, he has this wonderful depiction of Napoleon uh, out on the outskirts of hell, you know, uh, thousands of miles away, you know, from the gray city because he keeps moving to be by himself. Uh, and he's just pacing, endlessly pacing and muttering. You know, it was Josephine's fault. It was Say's fault. It was, you know, just blaming people over and over again. And that's all he can say. He's sort of stuck. You know, he can't, he can't break out of it. Uh, and, uh, you know, imagine that goes on for another million years or a billion years. Uh, what's left really of Napoleon at that point? You know, um, the way, the way Lewis puts it in the great divorces, you know, the question is always whether there's still a grumbler left or whether he's just a grumble, you know, whether there's still is there an envious person there or is he just envy now? Is he just the ashes of a person, you know? And, you know, if you recognize that what we are at bottom is, um, a rational will whose, whose origin and end is in God, you know, that the, the, the beginning, the sort of orientation of all of our acts, our deepest desire in every act is, is for God, a will which really could persist everlastingly in defiance of that end would just cease to be human. You know, I mean, this is, I think that there's a, there's a, it would cease, it would cease to be a rational will. You don't have, so you, you, you end up effectively with annihilationism. You can call it, you know, you can call it everlasting conscious torment if you want, but um, the personhood can't sustain. Okay. That makes sense. So obviously we've covered a ton of ground. And there's still a lot more ground to cover. So what I would say is go get yourself a copy of the book and you can engage more in the arguments and the thinking that goes on in there. I think um, you're a clear writer. You're easy to read. So I imagine most people would, uh, most of our listeners would be able to handle it and uh, benefit from it. So I know there's places that you're going to disagree with him probably. And that's fine because I think it encourages good, deep, clear thinking. And I think you'd, Brandon, you you seem to do it in a really charitable uh, way. And I think you kind of mentioned that, how you want to put ecumenical pressure on things. I think I see that disposition throughout. And I think that's a disposition that we all want to cultivate, um, no matter where we end up landing on the arguments. So I really appreciate you for taking the time to walk us through some of this. I think it's fascinating. A lot of the arguments I, I, I'm just not familiar with, you know, I, to some degree I am just, you know, I grew up Protestant, so it's kind of like purgatory bad. And that's about the extent of the argument. <laughs> so it, it's helpful to try to get inside. Uh, so, you know, the other, the other position and say, okay, let me actually look at it, look at all the furnishings and see how this would make sense to really understand it and have a, a more, I guess, charitable disposition towards it, whether you at least if you reject it at that point, you're rejecting something you understand rather than something you just have a vague sense of. So number one, thanks for talk talking with us. And number two, go get a copy of the book. I think it's great. I'll link to it in the notes. Um, just, you know, the topic in general, accountability, I think is super important. So, um, and there's lots of cool stuff in there. So check it out. And Brendan, one last thing, you're on, you're on Twitter, right? Do you have any other online presence that people can find you? mostly twitter yeah cool well then i tell everybody go check check him out on twitter that's where we met so i i I always like twitter because i meet all sorts of cool people anyway so for those who've been listening this has been the only analytic baptist and confessional podcast on the planet and we thank you for tuning in
Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.